I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Laws number 693, and this is Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, a virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time, making exercise and study a cornerstone of your daily routine, because Freemasonry is work. When you put in the work, Get closer and closer to the point within the circle. Masonic muscle. We give you more light, but no light weights. We're here to pump you up, body, mind, and soul. Welcome back. Welcome back. Before we get to today's show, I have a real quick favor to ask you once again. If you've been enjoying the Masonic Muscle Podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you took one minute to give me a review on either iTunes or Spotify. It helps me out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think would get something out of it. Word of mouth is the primary way Masonic Muscle grows and spreads. So please share. Text a friend. Send out an email. However you communicate, tell them to check it out. Thank you for your continued support. And now on to the show. been talking to you guys about <clears throat> exercise but before I get to that all you California Masons out there all you officers all members that want to help when it comes to the ritual have you been studying your ciphers and this this is stuff that a lot of it once you learn how to read the cipher and once you've committed to learning certain parts of, of the ritual, you have to spend time. You have to put in the time. Just like with exercise, physical exercise, you, you yourself have to put in the hard work. You have to set time aside, make sure you're in an area where you're not going to get distracted. And even if there's distractions, you have to find a way to, to get it done. Read that cipher for 10, 15 minutes per day, little chunks at a time where it doesn't become overwhelming. And then once you establish the habit, you can uh, set out longer and longer time periods where you get bigger and bigger pieces of your memory work learned. Have you been digging into the mysterious origins of masonry? Have you been improving your spiritual, moral, and Masonic trestle boards? Have you stopped making excuses? and begun to improve the level of your fitness one degree at a time. Have you improved the quality of your nutrition? And if not, why not? When would now be a good time to start this improvement of your body, mind, and soul? Now, over the course of this year and a half or two years, I don't know how long I've been putting these episodes out. I have mentioned a number of Articles, a number of authors, a number of practitioners of exercise. I don't know if I've mentioned Randall J. Strausen. He's a PhD, but he wrote a book back in, was it the 80s? Let me see when this was written here. This was written, this book came out in... 1989. The book is called Super Squats, How to Gain 30 Pounds of Muscle in Six Weeks. 
it is it has a total of 96 pages it's small it's really compact it's really nice and it really focuses on abbreviated training something that i've mentioned the compound movements and it gets into some really really cool stories stuff that uh you know he has been through and then people he has he has met and some of the pioneers of the squat routines that i've mentioned from time to time uh, the biggest one being uh, Brother Heiss, H-I-S-E. He's the one that Joseph Curtis, Curtis Heiss, he was 5'8", and he's the one that started this 20-rep uh, 20, 20 squat routine, which later on became known as the, as the uh, milk and squats routine, because back in that time, in the 30s or 40s, when Joseph Curtis Heiss was living and experimenting with this, with this type of exercise routine, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of protein powders and all that. I think there was some, but, you know, they, they were very horrible from what I read, this descriptions. But the one thing that they did know was, hey, let me go get some cow's milk because it was something that was common back in that time in certain areas of the United States that a family had a family cow and chickens. They would go out every morning, milk the cow, and then get back inside and drink that milk. So Joseph Curtis, Curtis Heiss. And he, this was back in, I believe, the 1930s. It says here that Heiss uh, was 5'8". He weighed about 180 pounds. And he was dissatisfied with his development and tried heavy high rep squats with forced breathing. As a result, he gained 29 pounds in a month. Progress so remarkable that no one believed him. Referring to his initial progress, Heiss would later note, this was news with a bang. And the Honorable Mark Berry withheld publishing Heiss's description of his progress until... Local references verified his claims. This was in 1940. By his own example, Joseph, Joseph Curtis Heiss documented the supremely effective nature of the formula. Heavy breathing squats plus wholesome food plus milk plus rest equals incredible growth in muscular size and strength. And since Heiss trained outdoors using a squat rack made from tree limbs braced against the wall of a tea shed, he also proved that the simplest equipment properly employed and even the crudest settings can produce dramatic results. Heiss pointed out to all who would follow his program that it would make them junk all their clothes. Brother Heiss, as Mark Berry referred to him, went on to develop power and bulk building programs based on exercises such as heavy breathing squats, extremely heavy breathing shrugs, and heavy stiff-legged deadlifts performed on a hopper. This is CL's 1940 and Raider 1956. And in the capacity, his importance would be hard to overemphasize. Underlying Heiss's contributions, the Iron Game historian and authority Charles A. Smith has said that more than any other man, J.C. Heiss is entitled to be named Father of American Weight Training. 
Huh? How about that? This is the 1930s. There was no steroids. Well, there, there's some research that it suggests that the, I think the Soviets or the Germans had already uh, steroids. And they were injecting their athletes with them or soldiers or something like that. There was no protein powders and creatine or anything like that. Just just downright what I've been suggesting since the beginning. Downright fucking hard work. Get it done. There's no substitute for it. There has never been a magic pill to substitute for the hard work someone has to put in in order to get results. Now, the last episode, I believe I mentioned Nesta Webster. And I went back to the book that uh, she wrote called uh, Secret Societies and Subversive Movements. And she dedicated a whole chapter to the origins of Freemasonry. But what I didn't read was the initial paragraph leading into that chapter. And this is what it says. It says, The origin of Freemasonry, says a Masonic writer of the 18th century, is known to Freemasons alone. If this was once the case, it is no longer. For although the question would certainly appear to be one on which the initiated should be most qualified to speak, the fact is that no official theory on the origin of Freemasonry exists. The great mass of the Freemasons do not know or care to know anything about the history of their order. Whilst Masonic authorities are entirely disagreed on the matter. Man, I couldn't agree more. Been a Master Mason for 21 years. Been researching, been reading a lot of stuff. A lot of varied topics. But when it comes to Freemasonry, this is indeed the truth, everyone. The great mass of Freemasons do not know or care to know anything about the history of their order. Whilst... Masonic authorities are entirely disagreed on the matter. Hence, all the different theories on the origins of Freemasonry. And then she went on to delineate 12 different theories, the ones that I mentioned to you already. Number one, from the patriarchs. Number two, from the mysteries of the pagans. Number three, from the construction of Solomon's temple. Number four, from the crusades. Number five, from the Knights Templar. Number six, from the Roman Collegia of Artificers. Number seven, from the Operative Masons of the Middle Ages. Number nine, number eight, from the Rosicrucians of the 16th century. Number nine, from Oliver Cromwell. Number 10, from Prince Charles of Stuart for political purposes. Number 11, from Sir Christopher Wren at the building of St. Paul's. And number 12, from Dr. Desigulia and his friends in 1717. Twelve theories? Well, there's was, there was way more than that. Trust me. There's way more than that. And we're going to begin, or I'm going to begin, or no, let's just say together. Because together, I'm counting on you guys. If you guys run into an in- interesting article or a document that has to do with the origins of Freemasonry, and it's something that will add to the common stock of knowledge that we need in order to understand our order, send it my way. Send it to me. 
at masonicmuscle357 at gmail.com so I can take a look at it, see what I can use and what I can't use, and then share that with the rest of all of you. And together we'll begin to formulate a timeline, you know, maybe formulate a, uh, a clearer picture of what we're trying to learn. She further says that this, enum this enumeration is, however, misleading, for it implies that in one of these various theories, the true origin of Freemasonry may be found. How right she is. Someone would just see those 12 and say, oh, it's got to be one of those 12. In reality, modern Freemasonry is a dual system, a blend of two distinct traditions of operative masonry, that is to say the actual art of building, and of speculative theory on the great truths of life and death. Of life and death. Interesting that she chose that, that description. That the other half is speculative theory on the great truths of life and death. Wow. So let's take a look at the first one. <clears throat> she mentions the first one from the patriarchs. Okay. And again, this list, uh, she used the, to, to come up with this list, she used the Royal Masonic Cyclopedia. And I, as I mentioned before, I, I believe we have a copy of that in our lodge library. Now I'm going to have to go and stash it so nobody can find it, just me. You're going to have to know the, uh, the word and the token of the word before I'll tell you where it's at. How about that? So from the patriarchs, why, you know, why would he say that? Well, because in Anderson's Constitutions, when you begin to read the, the legend of where Freemasonry comes from that Dr. Anderson wrote, that's what he says. He begins to talk about Adam, starting from Adam, and then his son Cain, and then Cain's sons, you know, Enoch, Seth. And then he begins to talk about Noah. All right. But the patriarchs, who, who are the patriarchs? How would we find this out? Well, we would have to go to, uh, obviously, either a rabbi, you know, that is learned in the Old Testament because they go by the books of Moses that talk about the patriarchs, or a, an encyclopedia written, put together by a Protestant church, you know, for their, for their uh, pastors and spiritual leaders so that they can become more learned about whatever it is that they have to learn about, or a Catholic encyclopedia. And that's what I've drawn from. I've drawn from the Catholic encyclopedia. I looked up the word, and sure enough, bam, it popped up. And the word patriarch, as applied to biblical personages, comes from the Septuagint version, where it is used in a broad sense, including religious and civil officials, e.g. 1 Chronicles 24, 31, 27, 22. In the more restricted sense and common usage, it is applied to the antediluvian fathers of the human race. Antediluvian fathers. Mm. 
I just think of Nephilim. And more particularly to the three great progenitors of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There you go. There you go. In the New Testament, the term is extended also to the sons of Jacob in Acts 7, 8 through 9, and to King David in Kings uh, 29. For an account of these later patriarchs, see articles on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Blah, blah. The early patriarchs, the earlier patriarchs, comprise the antediluvian group. That's the one we are interested in. Yes. Writing my notes down. And those who are placed between the flood and the birth of Abraham. Of the former, a book, uh, the book of Genesis gives a twofold list. The first, Genesis 4, 17-18, passage is signed by critics, the so-called J-document. Starts with Cain and gives as his descendants Enoch, Erad, Maviel, Matusael, and Lamech. The other list, Genesis 5, 3-31, Ascribed to the priestly writer P is far more elaborate and is accompanied by minute chronological indications. It begins with Seth, and strange to say, it ends likewise with Lamech. The intervening names are Enos, Canaan, Maliel, Jared, Henoch, and Matasula. Then later on, it says, these figures have always constituted a most difficult problem for commentators and Bible readers. And those who defend the strict historical character of the passages in question have put forward various explanations, none of which are considered convincing by modern biblical scholars. Now, this article was written in 1910. Things could have changed. Uh, but when, and with, the cata with something like this, it, you know, they have entrenched thinking. When you're talking about biblical scholars, there, there's a certain tradition, there's a certain story they want to keep intact. So I believe it, this probably still holds true. So the patriarchs. These are the patriarchs. Adam, Cain, Abel, Seth. Those are it. Later on, we get Noah because this is pre, you know, this is anti-diluvian, anti-diluvian, right? And he built the ark because God was mad. And this theory that Freemasonry comes from the patriarchs, meaning antediluvian groups or group because there is a big a big uh, contingency out there who has really been on the case of these antediluvians and the Nephilim giants you can find all kinds of document documentaries. They're somewhere really good on the internet, on YouTube, talking about the Nephilim. I follow a podcast called The Sasquatch Chronicles, and there have been several people gone on there who talk about the Nephilim because when when they after they 
talk about their experience, their encounter with Sasquatch or Bigfoot or whatever they thought they were, uh, Woody will ask them, what do you think it was? And several of them have said, you know what, I think that's the Nephilim. And the majority of them who say that are conversant or are, you know, God-fearing, Bible-reading people that have gone to church, that understand what they're saying, and so they will attribute it to the Nephilim. Like the, the, I think they're Nephilim. There's debates as to what Nephilim actually means. There's debates to a lot of this. A lot of this. So the patriarchs are one of the, they're antediluvian fathers, and is one of the theories of, of the origins of Freemasonry. And Dr. Anderson, who was Presbyterian, a pastor, a Presbyterian, and he was commissioned to put together this, the constitutions of Freemasons. He, he, was, he was commissioned to go out and gather all these constitutions, different ones that were that were about, and try to unify the stories and, and come up with something that everybody could use moving forward. Because from what I'm understanding, these lodges that were already in existence before those, those four older lodges, lodges got together and decided on forming a Grand Lodge, <clears throat> They each had their own constitutions, Masonic constitutions. And with varying degrees of differences, I think for the most part, they probably did align. I haven't done uh, any research as to far as like, okay, what the, the, the manuscripts and the constitutions that, that we do have in our possession, and we can get copies of them, uh, how much do they align and how and where do they diverge and is it that big of a thing but it basically they each had the constitutions the charges or regulations and in those charges or regulations they would tell a story and thence hence where this came from and starting with adam our first parent created after the image of god the great architect of the universe, must have had the liberal sciences. For those of you who have been attending Palm Springs Lodge, does that sound familiar? The liberal sciences, particularly geometry, written on his heart. For even since the fall, we find the principles of it in the hearts of his offspring, and which in process of time have been drawn forth into a convenient method of propositions by observing the laws of proportions taken from mechanism so that as the mechanical arts gave occasion to the learned to reduce the elements of geometry into method this noble science thus reduced in the foundation of all those arts particularly of masonry and architecture and the rule by which they are conducted and performed no doubt adam taught his son's geometry and the use of it in the several arts and crafts convenient at least for those early times. For Cain, we find built a city, which he called consecrated or dedicated after the name of his eldest son, Enoch. And becoming the prince of the one half of mankind, his posterity 
would imitate his royal example in improving both the noble sciences and the useful art. Nor can we suppose that Seth was less instructed, who being the prince of the other half of mankind, and also the prime cultivator of astronomy, would take equal care to teach geometry and masonry to his offspring, who had also been the mighty advantage of Adam's living amongst them. Antediluvian. Now, many scholars and masons have taken that story to be just fanciful mythology, but with newer research, and I've shared some of that with you, and I'll share it again soon, we're beginning to understand that they were writing these things and they were relaying it according to what how they saw the world back in 1720 when these manuscripts were gathered and put together and then tried to come up with something new that would represent all of the manuscripts and represent it well. This is how they saw the world. This is what they understood. This is what they were reading. The people that knew how to read and write, and they had access to these books like Dr. Anderson, and the others who helped him, they must have been in these circles, reading circles, study circles, where I understand too that more than likely he was. they were also studying the Kabbalah. They were also studying alchemy because that was what was going on back then. So if you become a Mason, you start going through the degrees and you start studying a little bit and you start memorizing and you start getting these these notions of like, hey, wait a minute, this is similar to Kabbalah, or this is similar to alchemy, or this is similar to what have you, uh, more than likely that's why. We do not have any written minutes of this where Dr. Anderson or any of those Masons specifically say or admit that, yes, we baked this into Freemasonry, and the three degrees, but we do know that we have Freemasonry, we have three, three degrees, and for whatever reason, there are certain things in the each one of the degrees that could be there no other way unless someone knew what they were doing and put it in there. So that's the patriarchs for today. And that the patriarchs, that's where we get Freemasonry. That's, that's what we learned about today. So get out there. Continue to work hard. Continue to study. Peace out. These strong sessions are calculated to inculcate in the mind of the novitiate the importance of subduing our passions and improving ourselves in Masonry. Feeding the attentive ear with the sound of the instructive tongue. Endeavoring to add to the common stock of knowledge and understanding. Effectively spreading the cement of knowledge and wisdom. And hopefully some good will towards exercising. Get out there and get your walking in. Open up your ciphers. Study, memorize, and just do it.